Brothers and sisters, please keep your Bibles open at Mark chapter 7. Let me pray. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If someone said you had heart disease, what would you do? In last week's passage, Jesus was asked a question in verse 5. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, there are two issues at stake in that question. The issue of authority, who do you obey, God or man, and the issue of purity. In last week's passage, Jesus addressed the former, authority, but in this week's passage, he addresses the latter, purity. And he does so with a simple contrast. Have a look at verse 15. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, the principle here isn't totally new. In Leviticus 15, nocturnal emission would defile a man and menstruation would defile a woman. Quite literally, the things that come out of a person are what defile him. But I don't think that's the main point here, right? Jesus isn't trying to be clever with the law or to get around its teaching. Jesus knows that under the old covenant, certain foods were unclean and even touching them, let alone eating them, would defile a person. So what's going on here? Well, I think we have a clue in verse 17, because here we're told that Jesus' statement was a parable. It's not like a parable like the ones we know, the parable of the sower or of the weeds. It's not a story, but like all parables, it does invite us to think and to question, to look beneath the surface. And I think that's why Jesus begins with the words, hear me, all of you, and understand. Because that's not a phrase you use before every statement. No one stands up and says, hear me, all of you, and understand. I'm off to the toilet. No, 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 that's not what happens right? But Jesus uses it here and he uses it before parables because he wants us to think carefully about what he's saying. Because Jesus isn't debating points of law here. He's not using one part of the law against the other. Now, instead, Jesus wants us to dig into the law and to see the principles that underlie the law and to understand what the law as a whole teaches about defilement. And what it says, what Jesus says, is that true defilement is not about the things outside of us, but rather the things inside of us. True defilement is about the heart. Now, brothers and sisters, in this context, the heart does not refer to the organ that pumps blood, and it doesn't refer to human emotions either. Now, in Jewish thought, the heart refers to a person's inner being to their command centre, the seat of their desires and their decisions. So the heart is a spiritual concept, not a physical one. And so when Jesus says in verse 18 that whatever goes into a person from outside him cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach, he's not making a point about anatomy. Instead, he's saying that the things which are external and physical cannot enter the internal and spiritual, right? Food enters your body, 
It goes through your body and it comes out of your body. It doesn't affect you spiritually. It cannot defile your heart. However, the sad truth is that food doesn't have to defile your heart because Jesus tells us that our hearts are already defiled. Have a look at verse 20. Verse 20, and Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. Now, sisters and brothers, think back over the past few months. For most of us, these have been challenging times. The pressure of being locked up at home, unable to escape family, children or housemates. The tensions at work. The burden of caring for the elderly and vulnerable. Loneliness. And in such conditions, most of us will respond in evil ways. For some, the response will have been anger and resentment. Harsh words will have been said, or probably more likely shouted. Or even if they haven't, those words would have been festering in our hearts. Why is this person doing this or not doing that? Why can't they just go away? Wouldn't life be easier without them? But that's the essence of murder. And the cause of that isn't the other person as annoying as they may be. The cause is our heart. We have murderous hearts. For others, the response would have been frustration at your circumstances. You look at others and at their situation and you say to yourself, if only my husband was more helpful or my wife was more patient. If only my colleagues or my housemates pulled their weight. If only my boss was more understanding if only I had more savings, or if only my children would just behave. But that's the essence of coveting. We look at our situation, compare it to someone else's. We are unsatisfied with what we've got and we want what they have. And beneath that, we blame God for being unfair to us. And the cause of this isn't our circumstances, as difficult as they may be. Again, the cause is our hearts. We have envious, covetous hearts. However, perhaps that wasn't your experience. Maybe for you, MCO has been an inconvenience, but nothing more. And so maybe you've been looking at other people and thinking, what's the big deal exactly? Yeah, sure, these are difficult times, but is it really that difficult? Or you might look at those going outside taking what you perceive to be unnecessary risks. And you say to yourself, how foolish, how selfish, what irresponsible people. It's not that hard to stay at home. And many of us will be thinking that because our homes are comfortable. They are quiet and they are peaceful. That's the essence of pride, looking at other people and believing that we are better than them and being blind simultaneously to our privileges. We are more reliable, more responsible, more resilient, and we get annoyed when these qualities are not noticed nor appreciated by our lesser brethren. 
because nothing compounds having to put up with another person's failure more grievously than when they fail to notice our greatness and graciousness for doing so. We have prideful hearts. Now the point is this. As you look back over the last few months, ask yourself the question, what caused these evil responses? Yes, the situation has been stressful. Yes, the circumstances have been difficult. And yes, pressures have been intense. But none of these things on the outside are the cause of evil on the inside. For as Jesus says, there is nothing outside of a person that can defile him. In other words, the MCO is the context for our sin, but it is not its cause. So what then is the cause? What is the root, the source? Where does our evil spring from? The answer is from inside of us, from our hearts. Verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, come all these evil things, and they defile a person. Evil acts proceed from evil hearts, evil deeds from evil persons. Now, I suspect that most of us acknowledge this, or at least in principle. But we don't have to deny something in principle to deny it in practice. For example, consider a sinful act that you did in the last few days. Now, ask yourself the question. Why did that happen? Now, if you're anything like me, you will shift the blame. I was stressed. I was tired. I was anxious, you say. And so I did this. It was my circumstances, but it wasn't my heart. Or maybe you minimise sin. You know that all sin is rebellion against God, a denial of his majesty, and thus infinitely serious. But that particular sin isn't such a big deal. It doesn't harm anyone, and actually surely God will understand. Maybe you distance yourself from your sin. So instead of saying, I am an angry person, do you say, I have a problem with anger? Or instead of saying, I am sexually immoral, do you say, I have a problem with lust? I'm not saying it's always wrong to say that, right? But sometimes when we do this, what we're actually doing is we're shifting the blame to an abstract concept, an abstract boogeyman outside of us, whether it is lust or greed or anger or pride or any of those things, because then we can believe that actually on the inside, we're the good guys, really. It's the, it's the evil on the outside of us. That's bad. Well, if you don't do that, do you redefine sin so that it isn't really sin anymore? Do you redefine character flaws as personality traits? Ask yourself the question, are you aloof or are you just selfish? Are you easygoing or are you actually just lazy? Do you have a bad reputation in the office and no one wants to work with you? Well, it might be because you have high standards and poor social skills. Or maybe you're just a bit arrogant. But whether we minimise our sin, redefine our sin, or attempt to distance ourselves from our sin, we are ultimately doing the same thing. We are, in fact, denying our sin. And the reason we do this is because we prefer living in denial. We actually like delusion. 
So ask yourself, why do you think the Pharisees were obsessed with the purity of their hands? Because it's hard to clean your heart, but it's very easy to clean your hands. Or why do you think they exchanged God's law for human tradition? Because God's law focuses on the heart and it demands inward repentance. So it's better sometimes to find an alternative law or to domesticate God's real law to something more manageable. And of course, we look at them and we think, how ridiculous, how silly. But we do the same thing all the time. We exchange outward acts for inward repentance and we create substitute authorities to justify doing so, whether it's tradition old or new. But this denial is very dangerous because if we deny our defilement or seek to cleanse ourselves, then we will remain defiled and we won't be acceptable to God. Now I'm stressing this point because it is so important. It is not enough to accept Jesus' teaching in your head, but to deny it in your heart. Because this passage is not merely about your heart, but it is directed to your heart, not to your head. And because it is directed to your heart, how you respond is also a judgment on your heart. What do I mean by that? Well, remember that this passage is a parable and parables have a purpose. And Jesus has already explained the purpose of parables in Mark 4. He says there, for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. You see, parables aren't nice illustrations designed to make things clearer. Actually, the truth is the opposite. Parables are given so that people will not see, will not perceive, will not understand, and so in the end, will not be forgiven. But Andy, I hear you ask, isn't that unfair? Isn't that unjust? Why would God do that? How can God do that? Well, to understand that, Jesus' words are a quotation from Isaiah chapter 6. And in that chapter, after five chapters describing the sins of his people, God finally appears as judge and passes sentence. And that sentence is that he will harden their hearts. In other words, this is not an arbitrary act, but it is an appropriate judicial act. God hardens the hearts of his people as a fitting judgment on their hardness of heart. And when you understand that, it sheds new light on the parables, new light on Mark, and new light on this passage in particular. Because our chapter, chapter seven, is very similar to an earlier chapter of Mark, chapter three. Because in chapter three, Jesus was in another conflict with scribes who came down from Jerusalem and these scribes accused Jesus of being in allegiance with Satan, saying that he had an unclean spirit. So for these people, people who had already rejected Jesus in the strongest possible terms, who had profaned the Holy Spirit, people who had already hardened their hearts, Jesus responded with parables. Now in Mark 7, we have the same type of people 
again coming down from Jerusalem, again in opposition to Jesus, again in enmity with God's law, again with hearts far from God, and again Jesus responds with parables. And in both cases, the parables are a judgment on these hard-hearted religious rulers. It confirms them in their hardness of heart. But that's not all the parables do. Because for others, the parables are genuinely open-ended. For the disciples and for us, Jesus' call to hear and to understand is a real call, and it comes with a real choice. And so what is that choice for us? How should we respond? And what is it that we are supposed to do? Well, brothers and sisters, whatever you do, it must proceed from purity of heart. If we change our behaviour, amend our acts, put up a show, but have impure hearts, then we will be like the scribes. We will be hypocrites. For this people honours me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Brothers and sisters, God does want the praise of your lips. But first he wants the purity of your heart. And so then the question does become, well, how do I purify my heart then? Well, we aren't told in this passage, but if we keep reading, we are told in the next passage. Because in the next few verses, Jesus is met by a woman whose daughter was possessed by a demon. And specifically, Mark tells us that she was possessed by an unclean spirit. And what did Jesus do? He drove out the demon. He removed the uncleanness that was within her. Now, we could stop right there and say, Jesus is the one who makes you clean. Go to Jesus. And that would be right. But that avoids a key question, which is, how does Jesus do that exactly? We could answer and say, Jesus is God. Of course he can do that. But that would miss the point, too. Here's what I mean. In the old covenant, when something clean came into contact with something unclean, what happened? The clean thing was defiled. It became unclean. And so when Jesus comes into contact with unclean people, as Mark so frequently states, and when Jesus actually touches them, as Mark often points out, then what should we expect? Well, according to the old covenant, Jesus should become unclean. He would have been defiled you see, that doesn't happen. In fact, the opposite happens. Jesus makes the unclean clean. And there is only one precedent for this. There is only one instance in the whole Old Covenant where this happens. The blood of the sacrifice. For in the priestly system, in Leviticus, blood, and only blood, can purify the unclean. And so my point is this. Every time Jesus purifies an unclean person, whether he cleanses the leper or drives out a demon or raises the dead, it presupposes sacrificial blood. And that means that when Jesus purifies a person, he doesn't do so merely on the basis of his power, but on the basis of his death. In fact, his death is the power for purification. 
Now, what that means for us is twofold. Number one, it means that we cannot cleanse ourselves. If we could, there would be no need for blood. There would be no need for the cross. We cannot make ourselves more content, more peaceful, more patient or self-controlled. Now, our hearts need the purifying blood of Jesus. And second, it teaches that our cleansing comes at a cost. The price for the purification of our hearts was the piercing of his heart. And so a key measure of our understanding of the gospel, our real understanding, is whether or not we abound with thanksgiving. Wasn't it noticeable when we studied Colossians how frequently that appeared for Paul? Now, I don't want to be misunderstood here. Because some of you might be thinking, but, but Andy, I, I already know about Jesus, right? I, I already know about the cross. I am a believer. I've been a believer for a long time. And that's not an application that applies to me. But it does. Brothers and sisters, when Mark tells us in the very next passage that Jesus purified a Gentile, someone who is not God's people, that's not an accident. That is a warning to God's people. Because it means that this Gentile, who was not one of God's people, was cleansed, whilst the scribes, who we assume would be God's people, remain defiled. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, what do you expect? They were the scribes. They were the Pharisees. But we're not like that. We're gospel people, gospel-centred people. And we don't trade God's law for human tradition, not at all. We never do that. You may be in danger. Because like them, we like to deny our defilement and to trust a counterfeit cleansing. And we like to invent our own rules to say that we're doing okay. And this is all part of our heart's delusion. Brothers and sisters, don't fall for the counterfeit diagnosis and don't fall for the counterfeit cleansing. Acts of contrition won't cleanse you. Church involvement won't cleanse you. Ceremonies won't cleanse you. Courses and conferences won't cleanse you. A priestly office will not cleanse you. Confession to your friend won't cleanse you and accountability groups won't cleanse you. They just make you feel better. Only Christ can cleanse you and only through his cross. Brothers and sisters, you and I have heart disease. Let us accept the diagnosis and let us embrace wholeheartedly and truly the only cure. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that, according to the merits of your son's death, that you would create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within. Amen.